You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Horton's new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So, if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. In 1938, only about 20 ivory-billed woodpeckers were known to survive in the wild. They lived on a patch of Louisiana forest called the Singer Tract, which was to be logged by the Chicago Mill and Lumber Company. Politicians and conservationists tried to save the habitat, but the loggers came and they clear-cut the land. By 1944, the last bird was gone. The ivory-billed woodpecker was a huge bird, nearly two feet tall with a wingspan close to a yard wide. It was a stunning thing to see. In 1967, the bird was listed as an endangered species, but no bird had been seen for years. Then, in 2005, a kayaker in a swamp in Arkansas said he saw a living ivory-billed woodpecker. Was it really the long-lost bird, or something else entirely? Today, we'll talk with Ghost Bird director Scott Crocker about his film, which documents the search, on this episode of Monster Talk. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Dog. Hmm. All right, so tonight we're going to be talking with Scott Crocker, who's the director of the documentary Ghost Bird. Uh, and this is a film not about ghosts, but about birds and the people who hunt for birds, or one specific bird, the ivory-billed woodpecker. Dum, 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 dum. Ben, so how did you first hear about Ghost Bird? 
Uh, actually, it was it was a documentary sent to me uh, late last year, um, and um, I don't know quite where uh, the director Scott Crocker got my name, but I was certainly happy that uh, he sent it. I was uh, actually very impressed by it. It was uh, an interesting, interesting uh, doc, uh, sort of covering all sorts of different angles, uh, everything from uh, issues that are very central to cryptozoology to uh, how science works. Um, you know, the notion of anecdotal evidence, what constitutes good evidence, uh, what makes a, uh, an esteemed, um, professional PhD person stand up in front of a mic and <laughs> millions of people and proclaim something is true when in fact they don't have good evidence for that. So, uh, it just struck me as being a very good doc that, that covers a lot of ground that would be, uh, of interest to, uh, both Skeptical Inquiry readers and also, um, Monster Talk, uh, aficionados. Yeah, the, um, the, the hunt for the ivory bill reminds me a bit of the uh, hunt for the thylacine and um, some of the, uh, well, and for that matter, uh, some of the hunts for uh, other cryptids and other animals that may or may not be extinct. Uh, and, and it's a good way for us to look at how hardcore, theoretically hardcore scientists uh, approach the question of, is this animal out there or not? So I'm kind of excited to talk to him about that. But we'll probably be looking at other animals like this, uh, animals which have more uh, solid footing in science, but whose uh, existence is still as tenuous as, as Bigfoot, for that matter. I mean, we still need to see some kind of a body or, or a live specimen or, you know, fresh guano that has DNA that can be tied back to the species, something, you know. So it was you and the fresh guano, wasn't it? Like? Any way I can get guano or feces, I am ready. <laughs> <laughs> Science is all about feces. It's, it's all feces. about scat. <laughs> yeah, it separates your interest in cryptozoology, though. Uh, oh, yeah, totally different. I just And you have to leave this in now after what you left in for the last show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's only fair. My yeah. feces collection. <laughs> <laughs> Personal collection here. Oh, don't mock it, or as we say, don't poo-poo my poop, right? (laughs) Monster dog. We're talking tonight with Scott Crocker, the director of the the new documentary film Ghostbird, which uh, I actually had the the pleasure of seeing late last year uh, when that was sent to me, and um, I think it'll be opening uh, in New York City later this month and uh, and, and, in wider release later on. So, um... Uh, the topic is the ivory-billed woodpecker, which um, is a quasi-cryptozoological entity. Um, it's a, a bird that was known to exist and that was thought to be extinct. And uh, several years back, there was some uh, some big hubbub about whether, in fact, it was extinct or not. And in fact, in um, in Skeptical Inquirer magazine, I wrote a piece on um, on the ivory-billed woodpecker, uh, and I had uncritically parroted the. Uh, <laughs> The uh, the Interior Department statement that in fact it had been found, and apparently uh, Scott's going to tell us that uh, I was wrong about that. Scott, can you give us a little introduction here? Yeah, I think um, you know, as you say, this was a bird that, that existed and then disappeared when we cut the forest down under it. And oddly enough, we actually rediscovered it for the first time, really, and uh, around the 30s or 40s it was originally thought to have gone extinct at the turn of the last century. And then um, disparate little populations were disappearing over that time. 
Um, but they, they found about 16 of them in uh, Louisiana, and that was about, uh, well, I know they they sort of cut the trees down under in, in the late 40s. So that was the last that, last time everybody agrees they saw them. And from then on, people have been seeing these birds, um, uh, usually mis, uh, mistaking it, or if not always mistaking it, for a pileated woodpecker, which is slightly smaller and um, shares many of the same colors. So a bird at a distance, um, you know, you can't really tell the scale on it, especially if it's a bird in flight and it's moving um, not exactly parallel to you. So um, I think in some of the first sightings that occurred in Arkansas, the there was sort of a joke about how the distance of the bird, every time it was described, it was like the fish that got away that the bird got closer and closer uh, to the viewer, so um, in the recollection of, of the sighting. The, the bird did exist. It, it looks like it disappeared for good, and partly what intrigued me about this story is that we can't really know for sure, and so it sort of explores that territory that you're all familiar with, which is uh, sort of the things that live on the, the sort of the boundaries of human perception, and, and sort of walk back and forth across that line just beyond where we can tell what they are. Yeah. How did you, how did you get involved uh, in this search or in, and decide to make a movie about it? Well, it's kind of uh, it's kind of like the Amazon. You know, where does it start? You can you can say where it ends. It seeds out into the ocean in one place, but there's several tributaries. Um, you know, and I kind of fed into this story from from a variety of, of tributaries. That, First, perhaps, has to do with um, sort of the unexpected loss of my mother, um, and I was in a sort of state of grief and, and loss. And when this bird appeared in the paper, um, having been sort of uh, miraculously rediscovered, it, it kind of sort of sort of spoke to me in an odd way in that state of mind. But uh, on a sort of more artistic and uh, filmic level, it it sort of piqued my interest almost in a sort of absurdist um, Beckett-like way. These people were hanging out in the swamps of Arkansas waiting for a woodpecker. Um, so it was like, almost like Godot uh, was supposed to appear for these birders. And, and that's really where sort of my filmic interest sort of dived into it initially. And then I was asked to accompany somebody to a wildlife film festival I had met this gentleman at this wildlife film festival where um, he had a PowerPoint demonstration of his, uh, all this sort of evidence that had been gathered. And he had spent 14 months down in the swamp um, looking for this bird, actually trying to film it for Cornell Lab of Ornithology and, um, and had had a sighting himself while he was on his way out of the swamp and had also heard the bird a couple of times. And then related to that, there's, there's this aspect of technology and how it allows you to find what you're looking for, um, which, you know, I immediately think of people getting on the Internet who are sick and, and finding the rare disease that they, of course, don't have. But, <laughs> you know, if you stick uh, recording devices, these sort of digital recorders in the trees – and they can record thousands of hours of, of tape. And then you go back 
or audio rather, and you go back and you scrub through that with some kind of software, uh, you'll find all kinds of things that sort of start to meet your expectations. And then you have to decide, you know, what double knock is really two branches banging together or from a previous search that cut, you know, they cut the teeth on this technology on a prior search down in Louisiana. They were sure they'd found one of these birds and two different universities ended up telling them that it was uh, the, the report from a double barrel shotgun. So anyway, getting back to the swamp, uh, this gentleman came out with all this uh, evidence from the search party and was taking it around the country. And he had it on his computer. And at this film festival, he sat me down and showed it to me. And it was fascinating. There was uh, information about the town of Brinkley and background on the scientists involved and all the volunteers that were starting to get involved in the search. And that's where it kind of jumped for me from being an absurdist comedy that was sort of like Samuel Beckett to becoming more about, well, this is a really interesting cultural event. And I didn't really go into it thinking the bird wasn't there. It just seemed like it was fascinating how, how thin the evidence seemed to be and how determined the people behind the the search seemed to be in, in, uh, sort of expressing their certainty that that's what it was. So for me, it then became sort of a story about what are the limits of certainty? So, Scott, you said that you had a personal uh, response to the story when it was released, and it seems as though in the documentary a lot of people had a spiritual or emotional response to the story. Why do you think that's the case? Well, I think that's a really interesting question, and it's something I've thought a lot about, um, partly because of my own um, you know, personal history with loss and You know, some of the things that come up for you are, um, you know, in in an even more sort of biblical sense is the second coming of this bird, the bird's resurrection, the sightings by people, the witnesses who see this bird. Um, There's this just like a, a vocabulary that surrounds it that sort of makes these really strong parallels to religious experience. And, you know, I think it has to do with the fact that this was such an iconic bird. It was nearly three feet tall, or rather two feet tall and with a three-foot three wingspan. So it was, it was enormous. The, the gentleman who did most of the research on the, the birds just before they cut the trees down underneath them was a gentleman named James Tanner. And he always heard these birds before he saw them. And that included hearing their, their wings beating in the sky above him. Uh, they were so enormous. And so I think they also had a, a really powerful hold on the Native American population that traded their beaks and heads and uh, skins um, as far away as Colorado. I believe they found specimens of them. So it's, you know, it's just a powerful, powerful presence and its absence sort of echoes that. And it, it, I think it, it holds a place in our imaginations that all megafauna tends to and you know unfortunate it is to to those species that are going extinct that don't capture our imagination the same way pandas and ivory bills do but you know i think i think it there's something that you can't quite articulate about it which allows you to sort of fill that space with with kind of a spiritual 
um, awe. I, I, following up on that, I mean, that, that was one of the things that intrigued me originally about the whole story was, um, you know, that I was, I was hearing on the nightly news and, and in, and published in Science Magazine and other places, uh, this rediscovery of this bird, which frankly I'd never heard of before, and I think most people hadn't either. And yet, uh, as you point out in the, in the documentary and elsewhere, um, it's, it was really, it was really, uh, you know, it, it held, a lot of significance for a lot of people, and and it made international news. Um, can you talk a little more about just just how why it was such a, a huge story? Well, you know, bizarrely, this bird um, it did make a huge impact when it disappeared. Um, at the time, they were trying to save the land that, that that last population of rediscovered birds were on in the 1940s. They brought in a president and two governors, and they actually raised the money to buy out the logging company that was cutting down the trees. And the logging company chose not to not to accept their offer and decided just they wanted to log the, the land, and they did. Um, so that kind of created a, a really big stink, and the echo effect of that created the Nature Conservancy, and the language behind the effort to save the bird at that time, written by Aldo Leopold, who is famous for a Sand County Almanac, he wrote the first recovery um, proposal for a species ever, and it was for the ivory bill. And the language for that went into the Endangered Species Act of 1973. So the, the, the loss of the bird had a, a huge impact, not only on the environmental community in the U.S., which was sort of in its early stages and, and really kind of got galvanized around this issue. But, you know, it's the third largest woodpecker in the world. So, you know, any birder around the world is going to know about it. And its loss was just considered epic and tragic, partly because they had a chance to save it and they didn't. Mm-hmm. But this bird, you know, it, it's on postage stamps in Tanzania and the Ukraine. It's been featured in Happy Meals in Australia in fast food boxes as, as a toy. It's, it's, had, it's, it's appeared in so many different places that you'd never expect. Um, it's really kind of shocking. So while many of us hadn't heard about it, it's really because it had been gone for 60 years. And um, unless you were a birder who would happen upon a picture of it and, and mourn the fact that you couldn't go out and see it, um, it, it just wasn't being discussed. Uh, so it, it jumped, you know, f- from the science pages to the front pages. And uh, I think also just, and you're familiar with this, uh, I believe that, you know, when something like this happens, um, it just captures everyone's attention. So, you know, if it's um, Balloon Boy flying over Colorado or... Um, <laughs> <laughs> or some other, you know, actual endangered frog species that, or in, in extinct frog species that gets rediscovered, which I believe just happened recently, um, you know, catches people's attention. You know, maybe or, a frog. Or, I was just going to say, just, or, or two Georgia boys uh, finding a, a dead Bigfoot in their backyard. There you go. <laughs> it makes the news. 
Yeah, I, I'm a I, I'm in Georgia, you know, Ben. Well, I, I didn't I didn't get <laughs> yeah. that way. Well, I, I was gonna say I actually I have uh, we have pileated woodpeckers here in my backyard, uh, and those are big birds. I'm just trying to imagine how big this. That must be really striking. I just can't imagine seeing a, a two foot tall woodpecker. I mean, these birds are already. I mean, the pileated are beautiful, but they're they're as big as big crows. Um, that's just stunning. Were most of the people who who were spotting these birds or think they were spotting these birds were they were they uh, birders or were they were they specialists in any way or, or just people from the area? So if you, how did this get started? Yeah, if you're talking about 2004, 2005, um, you know, 2004, it was uh, this whole thing started really with a kayaker who spotted the bird. Um, spotted a large woodpecker on a tree outside of Brinkley while he was paddling around. Um, you know, but the story kind of starts a little before that too, because there was a woman named Mary Scott who saw ivory bills in Arkansas or claimed to two years prior to that. So oddly enough, when this kayaker mentioned on his local, um, listserv for kayakers that he'd seen a big woodpecker, they said, you know, you know what this is, and you've got to go tell this woman, Mary Scott, because she's the only person in the U.S. with a website where you can report a sighting of one of these birds. Well, Mary Scott had already been contacted by a gentleman from Cornell who was writing a book about ivory bills and was searching for them himself. And um, she passed the lead on from the kayaker to Tim Gallagher in uh, – at, at Cornell Lab of Ornithology, and that that led to him quickly coming down to Arkansas, paddling around in the same swamp, and within days seeing an ivory bull along with another gentleman that he was uh, searching for them with. And that's really what jump-started it. Um, you know, the initial sighting by the kayaker, the follow-up um, by the two two gentlemen, one from Cornell and he went back, told his boss, and, um, you know, they'd, they'd already searched in 2000 or so in Louisiana for a bird that someone said they'd seen. And this had just sounded too good to be true. And for the next uh, year, really, you had some of the best ornithologists in the nation from one of the most prestigious ornithology labs on the planet parked down in Brinkley, Arkansas, seeing this bird fly by them. And they, you know, what was amazing about that is prior to this sighting, if you were anywhere up in the ranks of, of ornithology and you said you'd seen this bird, you immediately fell about 10 rungs down that ladder. So, um, it was almost as though the iceberg flipped. Suddenly, it became the in thing. It was a measure of your birding prowess if you could see this bird. But, but they're only they're, they're seeing it, but they're not getting feathers or finding nesting sites or eggs or anything like that, right? Correct. the The only thing they have are eyewitness accounts, recordings, which for a long time I, I don't think they ever published the recordings because. They themselves couldn't verify the recordings. Now, oddly enough, there was a videotape that's famous now that was 
seconds long, four seconds long, um, jokingly referred to as, as making the Bigfoot videos look good because it's so blurry. <laughs> <laughs> and that's and, not easy to do. Yeah. And it was that videotape that then was um, the basis of the, the scientific paper in, in Science Magazine that claimed the persistence of Iberdills and, it, and, the, and the rediscovery. And what's amazing about that is this visual evidence is so, so blurry and so poor, it had to be treated to kind of create more contrast and to get rid of the, the banding that happens in video and the, the black outlines and shadowing that the, the pixelation process just sort of naturally kind of um, sort of in, it imposes on images. And um, so there was a lot of analysis that went into it. And of course, whenever you're doing analysis of something, especially trying to uh, bring out aspects of it, you are you're becoming involved in the in that process in a way that may or may not be scientific. <laughs> well said. <laughs> I think all of us having some familiarity with, for example, the 1967 Patterson Gimlin Bigfoot film, where you know they've been reanalyzing that, rehashing it, and reworking it <laughs> ad infinitum for the last 40 years, and. Uh, it just, it's just, it's remarkable how they keep trotting it out as evidence. So it's, uh, having seen that clip in, in your film, it's, uh, it, it reminded me a lot of that. Yeah, and what's, what's similar and then also what's different about this is while they, they knew they had really blurry video, they'd been seeing the bird or believed to be seeing the bird. And so they anticipated following up that blurry video with the, the high-definition footage of this gentleman that spent 14 months in the swamp and you know national geographic cover still photos of the bird coming and going from its nest hole or its roost hole so you know i think they they knew they were treading on some thin ground with the videotape but they anticipated any day following it up with something much more stunning and and finding eggs and finding feathers and, you know, eventually, you know, locating its roost hole in such a way that they could park a webcam nearby and everybody across the world could view ivory bills once again. So in looking at the video evidence, what creature is that believed to be? Um, it's generally, I think, perceived to be by people who, who don't buy the analysis of it. They believe it's a... Um, Apiliated, but I think, interestingly enough, uh, the best-selling uh, bird guide author and illustrator David Sibley, when he he was writing his skepticism about this, he said, you know, you can't really say that it's anything, one way or another. Um, the odds are that it's apiliated, but the evidence is so poor that you know. Maybe you can say it's a woodpecker. It's, it's really difficult. And then you get into things like analyzing the wing beats per second and the ratio of black to white on the wings and um, some really kind of, uh, you know, dicey and nebulous stuff that uh, really makes you feel like, well, 
just go out and get some good footage of the woodpecker. You know, don't don't waste your time on this really blurry videotape. Just just shoot the bird. <laughs> right. If it's there, go get it. Right. <laughs> and so if the ivory-billed woodpecker is very similar to the pileated woodpecker, why would people immediately jump to the conclusion that it would be the ivory-billed version? Well, um, if you're looking for Bigfoots in the woods and you see a bear behind a bush, what do you see? All together. Is that right? Fair enough. Totally right. You know, I think that, I mean, partly what makes this story interesting is that it does seem to be a parable about you find what you're looking for um, and and be careful what you look for because you'll find it. But, um, you know, pileateds can be found in California. They can be found in Arkansas. They can be found... I believe on the eastern, you know, seaboard as well. I mean, they they travel all over the country. Um, so that that's a, a bird that's everywhere, and it'd be easy to to spot ivory bills. In fact, in the film, there's people who talk about reports of ivory bills coming from France and South America, not only not only from New Jersey and places where the bird never actually even. Uh, spent any time, but well beyond its original native habitat land. Antarctica, Mars, who knows? Eh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, what 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 uh, what interested you most about the subject? I mean, you, you talked a little bit about how you got you got into it originally, but you know, once you, what made you decide this would be a good subject for for a documentary? Well, I think it it had to do with the the sort of range of characters in the film. Um, and some of those being, well, one, the bird itself, which doesn't appear except in historic footage. So it's kind of a, a film about a bird that isn't there, at least not in the film. And then the town of Brinkley was a really interesting character for me and the people who populated it and the, and the place it, it plays in the story, which is really actually fairly complicated Um you know, a town that's sort of down on its luck, having once been a a rather um, you know rather stunning crossroads of two railroad lines, lot, lots of transit, lots of um, lots of people moving through there, and uh, and now it's it's a it's part of a county where their population is just draining away, and. Um, so their their hope for this bird to be in their back door or sorry their back backyards and, and flying around and that it would attract birders from all over the country which uh, you know was really palpable and you could sort of feel how they they really pinned their hopes on this bird's reappearance. Um, so they were really kind of not the best um, best critics. Mm-hmm. For whether the bird was there or not, because they had a real interest in it, in it being there, and made made great partners for Cornell, who wanted a local connection and and wanted to connect with the locals and um, sort of foster a, a relationship there, and and they just kind of patted each other's backs and scratched each other's backs the whole time. I think. Wait, is this movie about Brinkley or about Hope? <laughs> 
That was the Arkansas joke. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But seriously, what what did you see as the main theme of the film, or what did you envision as being the main theme of the film? Well, I think for me, I mean, partly what attracted me to the subject, to, to keep answering that question, because it relates, is I'm intrigued by stories that, that kind of have an ambiguity to them that, that seems to sort of circle around a topic without ever being able to quite land on it. And um, I, I wanted to make a film that really raised more questions than it answered so that the people who saw it walked away were left with that same sense of awe that I think you you sort of come up against when you start to think about this bird and and what it was when it was alive. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about, the stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness, Philosophy, UFOs, Ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose, it kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. So, you know, that's that, that kind of is the... the overriding um, not really a theme but the overriding experience that, that I got from the story and that I, I hope the film kind of conveys is this sense of mystery and awe and and I really sort of am tired of documentaries that come out and tell us things and don't let us do many, much thinking so I, I really hope that I really hope this film could kind of be a um a place to depart and, and have a, a, you know, continue that conversation. Was this your first documentary or did you do another previous ones? No, I, I did a previous film in the South as well on um, sort of visionary or outsider artists. Um, and that was really more about the creative process um, as, as sort of they encountered it. 
So in some ways it was different. In some ways it, it overlapped. There was also a, a kind of a spiritual calling within those artists often and the work they made. So um, maybe there's there's some of that resonating in this story. Mm-hmm. And a little earlier you were talking about uh, academics and bird watchers and um, so many people going out in search of the woodpecker. How many people were out in the swamps and forests looking for this bird at any given time, do you think? Well, that's that's an interesting question, Karen, because the the kind of some of the last ideas about why they weren't finding the bird as the years progressed was that there were too many of them out there looking for it and they scared it off. Um <laughs> Okay. And uh, I don't really have a, a figure for you, but I know that there were, um, you know, in the, in the dozens uh, wow. of, of people who at any given time, once the search got underway, they had dozens of volunteers who would come in for two week um, sort of two week, st- two week stints and um, go look for the bird for them. And they, they had very clear um, protocol for how the search worked and really wanted their, their searchers to park themselves in one place all day so that they weren't moving around. But then at one point they had ultralight aircraft flying over the swamp. Um, and whether that was supposed to spook the bird and out into the open or whether they were going to surprise it, I don't, I don't know what the answer to that was, but... Were they all pure of heart? Because I, I've heard that that sometimes helps with these kind of quests. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the sword won't come out of the stone unless you right. uh, you're pure of heart. They should have hired a psychic. I think they did. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it didn't work. I, I think. Well, you know, I think Memphis is full of psychics that offered their services. Which is, oh no! It's only about an hour away, so. Oh, I mean, oddly enough, I don't want to belittle the search. I'm sorry. I just, I just want to say that I don't want to belittle the search. I think it's good to search for these things, but mm. some, you you know you got to actually have some kind of evidence ultimately. Yeah. So. Well, touching on, on the, the psychic component, Mary Scott was part of a search in Arkansas in 2000 um, where she claims to have seen the bird, and um, she tells some really entertaining stories about being on some searches with, um, I believe there was a woman who was a horse whisperer for the U.S. Olympic team who got called in to provide uh, counsel on how to find the birds and, um, you know, told them to wear blue so that the birds could see them and to chant so that the birds would know where to come to. So, How'd that work out? Uh, well, it seems to have actually ultimately worked out well for Mary because – she had one of uh, two sightings of this bird. Well, actually, I guess one of three of this bird where it was actually not flying through the air but was on a tree perched, sitting there long enough for it, her to watch it and see it fly away, which is the same with the uh, the kayaker. And then in 2000, there was uh, a turkey hunter who uh, saw the bird. It, it just happened to be on April 1st when he saw it. <laughs> Nice. <laughs> well, I guess I'll jump in. Um, one of the one of the interesting uh, parts of the of the the whole story is 
um, is that, you know, it wasn't just people who are out there looking for it. Uh, all of a sudden, there's a Department of Interior spokesperson on the on national news saying the woodpecker's been found. Uh, can you can you give us the, the, the context for that? Yeah, I think that's, um, you know, I, I think you can read that pretty cynically. Um, and, and if it's not cynical, it's it's just political. Um, I, don't, I don't think the Department of the Interior is a reliable source for uh, that kind of information. They they really just were um, providing a venue for um, the announcement to be made. So um, oddly enough, the the rumor is that the original announcement was going to be made by Laura Bush, and um, the the information about the birds rediscovery was leaking out on the internet and this was while it was still top secret and it was leaking out a little too quickly and so they had to move a little faster than they anticipated and Laura Bush wasn't available at the time so um, the next best thing was Gail Norton Um, but why would but why would the Department of Interior uh, and the Bush administration consider it so important they issue a statement on it well I think it was you know it was a great green message to um to hold up in front of their less than green uh, agenda in their administration. So I see it as sort of a cynical move, um, especially since now, um, you know, Gail Norton moved on from the Department of the Interior to becoming counsel for Shell Oil. Um, so, you know, cozy. yeah, the Department of the Interior has always been really cozy with the uh, petroleum companies. And in fact, there's a, a historic piece of, uh, there's some archival film in Ghostbird that I found uh, featuring a famous ornithologist and bird illustrator named Roger Troy Peterson. And he's, he holds up an ivory bill skin and is talking about endangered species. And this, of course, is not in, in the 70s. And we haven't, you know, we never listened to that message back then. But We made an Indian cry. It <laughs> <laughs> was an actor. It was an actor, Blake. <laughs> but this... Iron Iron Cody's is no actor. Anyway... <laughs> This movie, it, you know, you get to the end of the movie and it, it, it shows that it's been sponsored by the, the Department of the Interior and then the National Petroleum Institute. So, you know, behind, uh, behind this Ivory Bill announcement, of course, the administration was trying to open up the Arctic Wildlife Refuge. And um, so it's, you know, I, I see the, the department's involvement as um, either really just kind of benign or are really sort of cynically, uh, cynically being used to promote a message of hope and environmentalism at, at a time when, um, you know, their inner agenda couldn't have been more contrary to that. So, so I think, well, and they did, I, well, the Clinton administration did the same thing with the Mars rock as well. Uh, they, and they kind of jumped out there and made a statement, um, you know, that's not how science is done, really. I mean, you know, there's um, obviously even if the bird corpse was found or a live bird was found, there would still be, you know, uh, positive identifications, peer review, all that sort of thing happening. Um, so what does this story actually say about how science works in real life? Well, that's the scary thing. I, I think um, the way science is working in real life is changing. And a lot of that has to do with funding. Um, the, the most sensational stories attract the most money. 
and I think this was one of them. You know, I had a an academic uh, explain to me that the way they see funding moving in their world is, and, and they were from the scientific community, was that it's like spaghetti getting thrown at the wall, and you throw the spaghetti at the wall, and whatever sticks, that's what you go with, and so people are just frantically looking for funding and whatever gets funded, that's what they move on. And if you let money drive the scientific, you know, moral compass, um, you get into a lot of trouble. So, you know, I think this, this story had a stickiness factor that, that allowed a lot of spaghetti to stick to it. And a lot of money got thrown at it. And while preserving habitat of any kind is really valuable, um, there are still limited resources with respect to the funding, and we have to look at where it's going. I mean, one of the, the sort of shocking things about the money in this story of, of the Ivor Bill is that, you know, they announced that there were, was going to be $10 million that was going to be going towards this search and acquisition of land to preserve habitat, and that wasn't all new funding. Some of that funding was getting journaled over from existing grants for other endangered species that we know exist. And, um, you know, that raises a really troubling question. It's like, should you be chasing ghosts with money from other creatures that are on the verge of becoming ghosts themselves? Well said. And I was going to ask you about how the story got so politicized with agendas and egos and what accounts for a lot of the venom and hatred over this topic. And I guess in part you've answered that. Yeah, I think it does come down to the money. Um, you know, it's one thing to to go running around the woods saying you're seeing ghosts. And then it's another thing to do that up with money from, from other endangered species. Um, so that quickly, um, you know, polarized people in the scientific community. But the other thing I think that kind of um, amplified it was that there was a real controlled effort behind the, the announcement of the rediscovery. Um, it was very well, very well controlled by the uh, Lab of Ornithology and the partners that they brought in uh, from nonprofits to other institutions, both in the state and on the federal level. And um, they did that with legitimate reasons. Um, you know, if this bird really was there and they were really seeing it, um, they had real reasons to sort of keep it quiet and um, build a case for preserving its habitat. But you also, you know, com- this comes back to the science question is, you know, when you create a bubble like that, you're not getting really peer-reviewed the same way that you should be. And it allows you to start making decisions in a vacuum. And so, um, you know, I think once that vacuum, or rather bubble, started to pop, um, and people who'd wanted to speak out earlier had been um, and encouraged in some cases, really pressured not to speak out. Um, they held their tongues so that the, you know, the funding effort and the fundraising effort could proceed. And when the evidence wasn't forthcoming down the road, um, 
those people felt really kind of betrayed and, um, and, you know, had more to say than, uh, than when they originally were just sort of skeptical. Now they were upset, you know? So I think there was a, a delayed effect that allowed the sort of anger to be a little, you know, it got bottled up. And so it came out a little more, um, loudly than if it had, you know, if they'd started out with, the announcement, like, well, maybe this bird exists. Look at this videotape. Tell us what you think. Um, and the community looked at it and said, you know, it doesn't look that promising, but if people are seeing birds there, you know, we should be down there looking and we should do a good job of it. And like, what are we seeing? And can't, can't we get a photograph of this? And why can't we get a photograph of this bird? And, you know, I, I think that would have been a, a more sensible approach. Um, you know, I was also shocked that they didn't, ask Jim Tanner's uh, spouse, Nancy Tanner, who's 90 um, and actually spent several seasons observing this bird. She's the only living person who actually has seen ivory bills flying around. And she could have looked at that videotape and given them an opinion. She's, she's for, for being 90, she's the most lucid and uh, sharp uh, woman in the story, in my, in my opinion. Um, so why wasn't she consulted? Um, I don't know. And um, that that really kind of, it really hurts. You can sense it when, in the film when I ask her about it. Um, you can sense the, the, the sense of betrayal um, in her voice and in her eyes. It's... Um, it's really unfortunate because it, it wouldn't have taken much. I mean, she, they basically told her that they didn't want the story to leak out. And so then it became an issue of trust, which birders are constantly trusting each other's sightings. And, you know, I heard this over there. And so you say, yeah, well, that bird's there because they, they heard it. They don't even have to see it, you know, for a birder to claim uh, a bird's in the area. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it sort of came down to a lack of trust and and perhaps you know again if you're creating a bubble and you don't want it burst you you prolong the you prolong that as as long as you can so so it doesn't pop how's cornell responded to to this have they they seen your film or how has that been handled uh, are they? Are they still? No, are they still getting money? Or is are they still researching it? Is it dead? Well, my I, I can't speak to whether they've seen the film or not. Um, I imagine they have. Um, it's been circulating film festivals. So, um, but as far as um, the search goes, I believe this winter was really the first winter that they don't have people officially in Arkansas looking for the bird. And even last year, it was a, a very reduced staff. Um, so oddly enough, they just kind of crept away um, quietly. But they didn't you know, stop looking for the bird. They actually went down to Florida. So they've been down in Florida looking for the bird, but not in the same place that another professor of ornithology has said that he's seen the bird and has um, sort of intimated that they are maybe as many as, you know, over a dozen nesting pairs there. 
So, of course, he, he had the sort of wisdom to not announce that he'd rediscovered the bird, but had um, good evidence that it may be there. So, Scott, I want to I touch on one of the, what I think is one of the linchpins to the story, which is the, uh, the science article, because uh, as, as you point out in the film, that uh, there was a, a cover article on, on the rediscovery of the woodpecker in the journal Science, which um, gave, gave the whole subject far more legitimacy than any Department of Interior statement. Um, uh, can, you, can you talk about that? Yeah, I think the Science Magazine article really is kind of um, the linchpin in this um, in a fascinating way because it, it, I think it sort of echoes the changes that are happening in journalism um, across the board and the, um, the challenges that uh, magazines and publications are facing. At least that's my guess, is that they jumped on this a little prematurely. Um, and for being, a, you know, a, a magazine that is really looked up to and revered as, um, you know, extolling the scientific process and doing proper peer review of articles before they get published, um, this story must have been just too good to be true to really, uh, really look deeply into well, give so, us a little, little bit of background in terms of, for, for listeners who haven't seen the documentary and aren't familiar with the story, who wrote the article and, and what did it say, basically? Well, there were actually about, uh, I can't remember how many, there's a number of people who wrote the article. Um, it was uh, ostensibly written by the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. There were, um, you know, what, probably 10 people on that paper. Um so it, it had, you know, everybody who could get their name on it um, did, um, because this was a career-making rediscovery, uh, which, which is part of the issue. Um, and that paper was first released in a um, web version that um, science produces. So... Uh, it was basically a, a glorified abstract that came out um, in advance of the publication in, the, in their paper magazine. And um, I think that may be part of the issue here, too, is the, the way we sort of rush to judgment um, or, or rush to, <laughs> to, to poor judgment um, when things sort of race onto the Internet and we're under deadlines and there's a great story. Um, it's, you know, go back to the uh, the balloon boy in Colorado. Um, you, you don't want to be the editor that missed the scoop, so you you sort of you know raced your deadline and uh, get it out there. And I, I think that may have played into this. But again, you know, how can that happen at a magazine that's all about um, you know vetting? Science. Well, uh, what was would, would a cold fusion article, you know, jump on the front pages? I don't think so. Hopefully not. <laughs> but uh, but in terms of like the, the content, because um, again, uh, you, you haven't really given a, a sense of what the article actually said and what evidence was offered for it. Well, I think it's um, it's really pretty simple. Um, 
the, the article leads off by saying that um, ivory bills persist in uh, the South and in particular in the swamps of Arkansas. Um, and then as evidence, it it cites the uh, video, but it being um, – I don't remember whether they actually linked the video itself, but they had done, they'd already done a great deal of analysis on the, the video. So they pulled out stills, um, freeze frames of the video that then they articulated uh, what they saw in, in them and why this was proof that the bird existed. And then they also referenced a number of sightings by people they felt were qualified to see the bird and, and know it when they saw it and to report it. Um, so it was kind of, you know, again, a sort of a two-step process of here's some people seeing the bird and we trust that they know what they're seeing. And not only do we have, you know, their, um, their birding prowess behind their statements, but we also now have a videotape that shows uh, what we think is an ivory bill flying in those same woods. So, um, you know, that was largely it. Um, and so it, 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 other than the, uh, the, the publication, the stills from the, the, the four second film, uh, there was no real smoking gun. I mean, that was, that was pretty much all they had, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that's what, um, that's what it relied on. And, and beyond that, it was, it was their name. Um, you know, a prestigious, institution that's um, all about science and all things avian and is highly respected and then it's it's a magazine called science which um, is highly respected so and, and yet they won't run a bigfoot story despite <laughs> all the footprints <laughs> <laughs> yeah what's up with that there are actually a lot of interesting parallels which is one of the reasons we wanted to have you on here between uh, uh, cryptozoology and the search for creatures that mm, no one has any proof of having ever existed. Uh, and then this creature, which we know used to exist, but we believe is dead. Um, have you seen a lot of comparisons there between uh, that search for possibly extinct, probably extinct? Or, and would you think that people who are out there searching would be offended by that comparison? I think a lot of people are offended by it, but I think it's, it's only natural um, that that parallel get, gets made. Um, you know the, <laughs> the people who are involved in it hate, hate to be called Bigfoot hunters or um, Loch Ness monster searchers, but um, and I think that's largely because you know it seems disrespectful to ivory bills, um, and they and they and they did exist. So um, you know the the parallel does end in one place, but it it, it really does persist in others and. Um, you know, the thing for me that I can't help sort of wondering about is, you know, what is this, um, what is this propensity in us for, for seeking out monsters and ghosts and, and things that seem to retreat under that, that sort of, that border of our, our, uh, perception. And it, you know, there are parallels there that, that clearly apply. And I think, you know, one of the parallels that, that comes up here is, you know, whether the, you consider the ivory bill a ghost or, or not, or, or 
you know, Bigfoot a monster or not, there's, there is a monster in the room, you know, and I, I would think that that monster might be us. And in this case, it was, it was us cutting down the swamps, um, cutting down the trees in the swamps. And, you know, with Bigfoot, there, there might be other parallels there, too, about things that we fear about human nature that we project uh, beyond us into the shadows. So on a human level, uh, you focus a great deal on the town of Brinkley and their expected influx of tourism and the woodpecker burgers and T-shirts and things like that. Um, how's the town of Brinkley doing now in light of all of this? They've kind of um, they've kind of also sort of turned down the heat on on the whole thing. It's um, you know the there was this gift shop there that was known as the the world's only ivory bill gift shop, and uh, it's since closed. And then I, I think a lot of the other ivory bill related. Um, Merchandise and and marketing has kind of um, slowed hugely and, and kind of been turned down. Um, but as you know, Kay Jacks, who's a uh, one of the people from the paper in in the town there, um, she says that you know this story is it's going to be like um, Roswell. You know, it's going to be like the UFOs. People will always come back to Brinkley looking for this bird. Um, you know, it's been put on the map. It's been, been put on that sort of cryptozoological map of places to visit to, to find things that um, are hard to find. Cool. Hmm. So, so to you personally now, does it matter if the woodpecker exists or is alive or not? Or do you think it should matter to America at this point? Well, I, I think why it matters enough to make a movie about it, um, especially a movie that doesn't end up declaring whether the bird is there or not, is that it, this bird is like a mirror for us. And it, it, it allows us to look a little deeper into our souls as a species and to ask some probing questions about our role as the grim reapers of creation and I think well what I hope the film does is it is it forces a bit more of a reckoning with that that place that we occupy on the planet and either we you know either we decide that that's not a, a place we want to occupy anymore and it's not a role that we want to be responsible for or you know or we own up to it and we say yeah we we take up more space than uh we seem to need and other species are just gonna have to suffer for it and um you know we're gonna we're gonna face that um where this story i think kind of starts to um to sort of upset that is when you you end up believing in something that might not be there and it gives you a false sense of hope um, rather than a, a, a sort of a, an awakening that um, jolts you into uh, a place where you, you suddenly say, 
you know, we need to lessen our footprint on the planet. Or not only ivory bills and other species that are pretty and big and interesting are disappearing, but, you know, so much lower down on the 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 food chain is going to disappear that we'll be next. So maybe, you know, maybe it just comes down to self-preservation might be the only thing that saves the rest of the planet. So I, you've, you've listed human as monster and, and uh, this is our show is called monster talk. Yeah. Do you, do you have a, a pop culture or, or, or mythical monster that's actually your favorite? But we try to ask every guest this. Yeah. You know, I'm starting to try to ask every guest this anyway. <laughs> I think um, you know. For me, it's it's got to be like Mothman, you know. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> did you did you see the movie? No. A lot of people don't like it. Um, I really kind of enjoyed it. How about your movie? Um, so, what's the status of your film? What's what's happening next for your film? Well, it's uh, it's a really big month for the film right now. Um, we're it's kind of exploding with screenings and um, multiple screenings and. Wisconsin, and then um, screenings in uh, New York City for a week at the end of the month. Um, and then we're also doing um, there's screenings at um, in Vermont at the Green Mountain Film Festival. And then towards May, we're actually on Endangered Species Day, which is a new, new event in America. Um, this is the 21st of May. We're launching what we're calling the 2010 Biodiversity Benefit Tour and screening the film in communities across North America as a way of celebrating biodiversity and then the people who are people and institutions who are working to preserve um, and conserve uh, species and habitat. So that's. Uh, that's going to be kind of an exciting and um, rip-roaring good time. So you can look forward to seeing the film and probably uh, not too far from uh, a city near you. Well, Scott, I want to say that I, I appreciate your being on with us. It's uh, When I saw your, your doc uh, late last year, it, it was uh, just really impressed me and of course that's one reason i wanted to have you on it's it's certainly one of the one of the better documentaries i've seen in a while and i i watch a lot of docs so good job mm-hmm. on that. well thanks so much ben it's been great talking to you guys thank you monster talk you've been listening to monster talk today we interviewed director steve crocker about his documentary on the search for the ivory-billed woodpecker ghost bird check out his website www.ghostbirdmovie.com to find out when it'll be playing near you. And if it isn't coming near you, you can arrange for viewing for your university, science club, skeptics group, etc. for a very reasonable price. Monster Talk is brought to you by the good folks at Skeptic Magazine. Speaking of magazines, Dr. Brian Regal, alumni of our show, has an article continuing his theme of werewolves in the current issue of Fortean Times. If you enjoyed our talk with Dr. Regal, you may enjoy the article as well. Monster Talk is hosted by Dr. Karen Stolzno, who's a skeptical investigator, blogger, linguist, and now one of the regular hosts of the Point of Inquiry podcast. And by Ben Radford, skeptical investigator, author, managing editor of Skeptical Inquirer, and designer of the board game Playing Gods, available at playinggods.com. And it's co-hosted and produced by me, Blake Smith. 
Links to all of our various projects can be found at our website, monstertalk.org. A quick note, once again, we had some audio trouble this week. I apologize. Karen and Ben have both purchased or acquired new hardware, and I'm going to be trying out some new software in an effort to improve the quality of the sound on our show. We love bringing you deeper insight into the mysteries and solutions related to monsters, and we want it to sound good when we do. We're learning. Thanks for sticking with us through the process. Music for the introduction was called How Can We Be Wrong from the 1938 album Paul Martin's Soothing Music, courtesy of archive.org. Theme music for Monster Talk is by Pete Stealing Monkeys. Thanks for listening. For more skepticism? Want to learn the truth about the scientific controversies of our time? Then subscribe to Skeptic, the quarterly magazine Stephen Jay Gould called the best journal in the field. To subscribe, visit Skeptic.com today.